Hi, everyone. I'm Liam Burke, Managing Director of B-Riley Securities. Uh, I cover diversified industrials and shipping. And I'd like to welcome everyone to Capital Link's Deep Dive webinar in this series. In this series, we have an opportunity to uh, be part of a detailed discussion as an analyst with the management of Global Ship Lease, including Mr. George Eupilos, Executive Chairman, Mr. Ian Weber, CEO, Mr. Tassos Parasopoulos, CFO, and Mr. Thomas Lister, Chief Commercial Officer. Reminder, Global Ship Lease is an operator of small to mid-sized vessels uh, classified in the 10,000 TEU or 20-foot equivalent unit category. Uh, they lease their um, vessels to major liner companies like Maersk and CMA, CGM under longer term leases complement the overall fleet of the larger liner companies. They operate typically in what are known as minor routes. Uh, before we begin our call, please note this discussion is strictly for informational educational purposes and should not be relied on upon, they did not constitute, excuse me, they do not constitute an offer to buy or sell securities or investment advice of any kind. So with all that out of the way, I'd like to go back to 2018 and discuss the genesis of today's global ship lease. Uh, as a result of a merger of the traditional GSL and Poseidon container, and both, rep, both sides of the merger have managements that are representative, represented in the business today. Since the merger in 2018, the fleet has increased over 80%. Since its full year in operation in 2019, EBITDA has gone from roughly $157 million to 2023 street consensus of over $430 million. The balance sheet is in great shape with low debt levels. The company pays a dividend with a healthy yield, currently at 7.5%. that's payable through the cycle. So I guess with that long introduction, I'd just like to get a sense as how did two cultures merge together to develop uh, numbers that speak for themselves and create significant enterprise value for the investor? Yeah. Thank you, Liam. Hi, hi everyone. Uh, let me answer this question. As uh, you know, with any successful deal, uh, needs to deliver value, as we all know here. That was the case uh, with our, uh, you know, M&A. Whether it's an M&A or it's our normal bread and butter business of buying ships on a value-creative basis, for GSL and Poseidon, there were multiple synergies that were unlocked with this uh, M&A transaction. One of them was that we had a better fleet portfolio. Uh, we had good contract cover and stronger earnings potential having a larger fleet. Then we had a bigger commercial footprint. Again, having a larger fleet, we were more important to the charters. And we had a diversified, that gave to, to DSL a diversified charter base, as in the early days it was just CMA. Then we had uh, a lot of cost synergies and savings. We also had significantly increased financial flexibility uh, as we had the greater ability to deliver build equity value and provide sustainable risk-adjusted returns to shareholders through the cycle. It was a bigger fleet. It was a public company. It was easier access to capital and so on and so forth. And now, and to answer your question, Liam, you definitely need the right management team for all of this to be possible. 
Now, prior to the merger, Tassos and I knew shipping and we knew how to grow a company, how to buy ships and, and how to do our, our business. We never, though, managed a New York listed company, which was something that Ian and Tom had been doing for years, the time we merged. So you need both merger parties and management teams to be driven by shareholder value rather than by egos. And you need trust, mutual respect, and good chemistry. We were able to test and confirm all of these things during the course of the merger negotiations, which were not straightforward uh, in any means, as the, the market at the time was completely different than, than today. And we were all called for to be creative, very cooperative, and try to be solving problem, solving problems together. So laying a strong foundation from that point forward for our cooperation. So in during this period, we realized that you know the team was you know complementing each other. Thank you, George. Um, Today, GSL has contract covered of almost two and a half years, and much of the many of those long-term contracts were negotiated when rates were fairly elevated. Um, has there been any discussion by your liner customers now that short-term rates have bottomed to renegotiate these charter agreements uh, more in line with where the current short-term rates are settling in right now? I will let Ian uh, answer this question. As uh, the GSL has gone through an even uh, more difficult time uh, with uh, high charter rates, uh, and the charter is in a different shape than today, and he has a lot of experience to tell you about that. Yeah, uh, thank, thanks, George. Um, uh, and thanks, Liam, for, for hosting today and to Capital Link as, as, as well. Um, yeah, it's a question we're we're being asked not infrequently nowadays with uh, concerns over the global economy uh, and charter rates in the in the market, the day-to-day the -day market coming down from highs that we've seen um, in 2022. But the, the short answer to your question is no, we, we have not uh, seen any uh, customers coming to us looking to renegotiate rates, uh, let alone impose rate reductions on us unilaterally. Um, it's never happened in uh, in in GSL's history, and George referred to some earlier um, challenging uh, circumstances that we faced um, when we were first listed in two thousand and eight. That that happened just before Lehman Brothers blew up, and the world as we know it changed. Uh, and whilst uh, we had substantial contract cover on our seventeen ship fleet, as it was then. Um, uh, folk were concerned that there'd be defaults and there were never any defaults despite the liner companies being under immense financial stress. Contrast that with today when those same liner companies um, have enjoyed three or four years, two or three years of fantastic financial results. Their balance sheets are stronger than they have ever been. Many of them are almost, if not actually in a net cash positive position with, with no net debt. Uh, and we feel very uh, comfortable with the credit quality of, of our customers. And whilst we're not complacent, uh, we, we don't lose sleep over the possibility of defaults on the contracts, uh, which are money good. Uh, and we also, to date, uh, haven't uh, had any discussions about existing charter terms. 
We have had in the past, to be completely transparent, uh, back I think in 2012 or 13, ar around that time, um, we, we did agree to amend and extend. It's a bilateral negotiation. Uh, we agreed uh, to, to drop the rate on, I think, four charters, three or four charters on very small ships against an extension of those charters by three years. So there was something in it for our customer, lower rates immediately, and there was something in it for us, the owner, a longer period of contracted revenue. Yeah, just to, just to add to that, um, the negotiation was present value neutral, and it was actually us as the owners who initiated it. So it wasn't a reaction to um, customers coming to us. It was us going to our customers in the context at that stage of a, a high-yield bond raise. So that it was a, a favorable bilateral negotiation that we began. Thank you, Tom. Uh, just a related question on that note. The first half of 2023, uh, you've had 15 new recharters. Uh, is that what you're speaking about now in longer duration, lower rates, which are net, net positive? Or, uh, and can give us a sense how you view the uh, your potential recharters in the future? Sure. No, you're absolutely right, uh, Liam. We we have um, added 15 charters um, during the course of, of 2023, year to date. Um, I should point out that that's a combination of either new charters where we're going into the market and seeking new employment um, or extending existing charters uh, with existing counterparties and generally um, as long as you can reach terms, that's most favorable as an outcome, both for the uh, the charterer, our customer, and for us, because you have a seamless continuation operationally as well as economically. And it also includes uh, a handful of uh, charter extension options that were callable by the charterers themselves. What I would say is that in contrast with... Um, 2021 and 2022 when the duration of charters was multi-year in nature and that was something that suited both the liner companies who were desperate for capacity and owners such as ourselves who were keen to have good forward visibility on the contracts uh, today durations are coming down somewhat and that's something that uh, you almost invariably see in times of uncertainty um, because neither the, the liner companies nor, nor anyone else knows how things are going to shape up macroeconomically over the next period. So rather than seeing multi-year charters, we're seeing charters of um, a few months to a year, let's say. Typically, the larger the ship, the longer the duration that you're able to, to get in the market. As far as rates are concerned, and Ian alluded to this earlier, um, they're certainly way off the super cyclical highs that we saw during, you know, well, really going from the second half of 2020 right the way through until, let's say, the third quarter of uh, 2022. Um, so we're, we're, we're down from there. But nevertheless, the, the charter market is proving um, fairly resilient. Thank you. Uh, on another topic, uh, acquisitions uh, an important part of your growth strategy and have been proven to be very accretive. Uh, your most recent acquisition of the four 8,500 TE vessels spoke themselves really nice. Uh, could you give us a sense as to what are the metrics that you look at to increase the probability that these vessel acquisitions are going to be successful? and generate a nice return for investment? Sure. Um, 
I'll have a crack at that. I'm sure um, the other guys will also um, chip in. So you mentioned this in your um, in your intro. Um, we're an owner of container ships, and we lease out those container ships on long term charters, wet leases to to our customers. Now we're focused um, on mid-size and smaller ships. So if you look at the overall container ship market, you're looking at ships ranging from roughly 500 TU, TU being a measure of capacity, up to 24,000 TU. The portion of the market that we're focusing upon is 10,000 TU and under. And that's um, significant because 10,000 TU and smaller ships can be traded in pretty much any trade worldwide. So they're hugely operationally flexible assets. Um, there's a liquid charter market typically um, for those assets. And the, the peer group itself is aging somewhat. So all of this adds up to a highly flexible asset base, which we think is important when it comes to, to managing risk, to your, to your question, um, Liam, uh, particularly in uncertain times such as these. And we also like to focus specifically on midlife and older ships. And that's a very um, attractive risk management strategy in our, in our view as well for two reasons. First of all, the older the ship, typically the higher the cash on cash returns associated with that ship number one, and number two, um, the lower residual value risk and higher residual value potential upside that you can take on those ships. So you mentioned the four eight and a half thousand TU ships that we acquired in April. Um, that's a, a perfect deal as far as we're concerned. So it's purchase of ships with a strong counterparty, chartering those ships back to that counterparty for a period of two years, which gives us strong forward visibility on highly accretive cash flows. It's it's roughly a three times multiple from a purchase price to EBITDA perspective on that acquisition. So very fat cash flows. And then because they're midlife ships, we're able to write them down to a very limited residual value during the course of that uh, initial charter. And from that point forward, because we selected these ships very carefully, they're very high specification. They have a high refrigerated cargo content, which is valuable to our customers. Uh, they have good forward earnings potential. So strong economics, low downside risk, which has good coverage to the downside and strong forward earnings potential. That for us is, is, is the recipe that we're always searching for. Just a quick follow-up on that, Tom. Um, within that 10,000 and below TEU category, um, you have vessels in the 2000-ish. Is there a bias towards larger ships now because of the charter agreements, or are you perfectly happy to buy a 2200 TEU vessel if it meets your financial metrics? Yeah. Um... So as long as, as as the ship size fits within our strategic envelope, which is broadly from 2000 TU up to 10,000 TU, from that point forward, it's all about the risk and return metrics of the transaction. So yes, we're willing to look at 2000 TU ships if the numbers make sense, just as we're willing to look at 10,000 TU ships. Typically, however, Liam, we think that if we can trend towards the upper end of that size category, all other things equal, that would be our preference. And uh, understanding that four eight five hundred TEU vessels don't just fall into your lap, and it's it's a talent that the unique GSL. Could you give us a sense on how the acquisition pipeline looks now? 
considering it's uh, it's always been a a, a cat positive catalyst for the company and the shares. Yeah. Well, there's always plenty of potential persons candidates out there, and we run the numbers on all of them. But we're very disciplined and very selective in our choice of acquisitions. That's why we haven't done a single transaction for almost two years, uh, from the third quarter 21 all the way to first quarter 23, when we the asset value started coming down, and we found uh, you know this deal that we did that made made a lot of sense on a risk turn mix. Now. Since then, asset values are still coming down. They have normalized, bringing down the risk and improving the upside potential, which is why we did this transaction to buy these four ships in April. Now, high, these are high specification ships with the high reef capacity, ECHO, and they have attractive charters which generate great cash flows and good onward earning potential with low downside risk for us. Now we feel that uh, as the market is moving ahead and charter rates you know, are slowing down, are moving down and values equally, there are more and more opportunities that will come uh, ahead of us, in front of us. Uh, but we will always be as selective as we have been. For us, it's not about doing a deal, it's about doing a great deal. It, it's, you know, we don't, we don't want to do just deals for the sake of doing deals. We have to be very careful and very certain about the returns for the shareholders. And on the flip side, do you have any assets or what you have in the past um, sold assets? Um, is there any criteria you have that would make you want to divest assets uh, and constantly managing your fleet? Yes, we always look at, at, at each ship that comes off charter uh, and we usually, in, in our type of ships, containers, you make a lot more money by keeping the asset and running it to the end and uh, getting all these uh, great cash flows rather than selling the asset. Uh, but we always consider uh, if the market is not giving us what we want, uh, the, the possibility of a sale of an asset. But so far, always the equation is, is, is more, uh, making more sense to keep the asset. Uh, and don't forget that, you know, it's also our commercial ability to charter ships, which is, uh, let's say, a bit higher than the average, uh, if I can say that, uh, which gives us uh, opportunities and uh, ability to uh, squeeze out of each asset uh, the maximum uh, profitability. Great. Liam, if I, if, I, if I can just add to that um, before, before moving on. Um, one thing I, I failed to mention, which I do think is sort of part of the special source in a way, when it comes to making acquisitions, selective acquisitions, as underlined by, by George for us at the moment, is, is our capital structure. And um, I don't know, Tassos, if, if it's worth you saying a few things about, you know, cost of debt and access sure. to that debt. Just to give you an example, in, for, in this acquisition, we had uh, put in place a very moderate leverage, uh, as we always do, around 76 million. And we have used something that we found very useful uh, um, the last few years is a headroom that we have from our interest rate cap. So in that case, our cost of debt remains very low, uh, below uh, 5%. 
and the, the interest rate cap headroom that we have currently give us also uh, ammunition for new deals. Uh, just to mention that our so for now the cap is uh, is got 64 base points. So as you can understand, it assists a lot on the conservative side and on the equitative side. Exactly, uh, and that, that that feeds into the overall asset level return. So I mean, if we were to look at the again the the, the set of four eight and a half thousand TU ships, Liam, that you you offered up as the example, we would expect to be generating levered returns in the 20s, high teens and 20s for, for such ships. So that gives you a sense of um, what we're targeting when it comes to uh, value accretive acquisitions. Thanks, Matt. Um, while we still have Tassano, so I'm, I want to jump to a later question now. Um, obviously, acquisitions generate significant value for you, disciplined acquirers. So when you make one, uh, there's a high probability that's a winner for the company and investors. Understanding you don't make them often because you're so disciplined. Tassos, where are we looking at your capital allocation? Uh, your debt uh, is, is very moderate relative to a uh, high fixed cost business. Understanding, as you just mentioned, you might take some moderate debt for acquisitions. Your dividend pays, I mean, your stock's yielding 7.5% on the dividend payable through the cycle. Mm -hmm. What what do you do with the excess cash? Uh, Liam, I'm, I'm happy sure. to take that one. Sure, um, uh, although uh, any of us is perfectly capable of answering it, it, it tends to be me that deals with capital allocation. Um, you know, we've we've mentioned the, the, the $2 billion of forward uh, contract cover the the two point three years over which that spread, you know that that gives us you know substantial visibility on EBITDA over the next couple or three years. Um, uh, Tom and Tassos have mentioned the interest rate caps um, that effectively fixes our interest rate um, through till twenty twenty six. So we've got uh, no real risk uh, to our cash flow from any substantial changes in what was LIBOR and is now SOFA. Um, so with, with that in mind, you know, we've, we've got a reasonable view on overall cash flow. And then to your question, what do we do with it? Um, we have fairly aggressive debt amortization built into our credit facilities. We have wasting assets, they're, they're midlife and older assets. Uh, and we think it's entirely appropriate that the associated debt is amortized pretty rapidly as, 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 as well. We have capex to meet, um, not only uh, regulatory capex to, uh, to to meet increasing constraints on emission controls and things like that, uh, and the regular maintenance capex dry dockings that we have to do uh, every five years on on the ships on average, um, and as they get uh, more uh, older, a, a little more frequently, but also discretionary capex to enhance with the agreement of our customers. Uh, the operating characteristics are normally fuel efficiency of the vessels. We 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 have to have cash to to meet that. We're we're happy to fund that up front, uh, providing we can agree uh, an appropriate um, increase in charter rate or increase in charter duration with our customers, uh, so we recover the capex over over time. Uh, we um, given the macroeconomic environment, notwithstanding uh, our positioning with contracted cash flows. Um, we, we feel it's appropriate to build some some, some balance sheet cash, some liquidity, um, uh, just on a purely defensive basis. And that would also allow us to move quickly 
uh, should there be appropriate acquisition opportunities that present themselves. In, in this business, you can't agree to buy four ships or six ships or two ships subject to finance. You have to be able to pay for the ships when you sign on the dotted line. Uh, and that requires us to have access to equity, the cash, uh, and also um, to, to debt finance, um, uh, which um, which we've demonstrated in space we've been able to achieve in, in, in the past. And then that leaves return of capital to investors. Now we have this sustainable dividend, $1.50 a year, 37 and a half cents a quarter. Um, that's been sized to be sustainable, um, pretty much irrespective of market conditions but providing us with flexibility for the other uh, capital allocation um, uh, allocations that I've, I've just mentioned. We've also, on a discretionary and opportunistic basis, returned capital shareholders by share buybacks. I think it's $47 million um, we've spent since late 2021 on, on uh, share buybacks, and that remains an important part of our capital, capital allocation going forward. We have a little over $40 million of unused board authorized um, approvals uh, to continue to buy back our own shares. Thank you, Ian. Uh, on the macro front, uh, no matter where you read, the total container sector order book uh, to the current global fleet ratio is very high. Understanding that not all order books are the same, that it's heavily skewed to the 10,000 TE vessel and above or above the 10,000 TE vessel. Could you give us, even though below 10,000 TEU, their order book is still pretty healthy. Could you give us a sense as to how you see the fleet developing over the next several years uh, with some puts and takes on, on how you see uh, capacity equalizing here? Sure. Um, I'll have a crack at that, Liam. Um, so just to, to sort of put some data around your, your question, if you if you look at the over 10,000 TEU order book, which is, to be very clear, not the market in which we are competing, the order book to fleet ratio is roughly 50%, 5-0%. If you then look at the overall order book to fleet ratio for the whole fleet, it's 29%. If you then focus specifically on our fleet segments, so 10,000 TU and below, you're looking at a little under 14, 1,4%. And to emphasize that, that is 14% that will deliver over the course of the next three or more years. So, you know, we have visibility on the order book all the way through the end of 2026 and into 2027. So that's that's the, the sort of the, the top view of the order book. Now, I, I referenced this earlier. Um, our peer group, the sub 10,000 TEU peer group, is an aging peer group. And there are various reasons for that, um, which you know I won't spend too much time on now. But fundamentally, the sub 10,000 TEU ships have been underinvested and underbuilt for around about the last decade. That means that you've got um, really quite an old um, peer group against which we're competing, as well as a comparatively modest order book. And if you were to um, perform the following exercise, if you were to say, okay, let's assume that um, every ship is, uh, once it hits its 25-year um, 
special survey and just for those who aren't uh, so familiar with shipping every five years or so a ship has to be um, put into a dry dock to be brought up to spec from a regulatory perspective and that costs in the region of you know a couple of million us so um, it's quite a, a moment of clarity for ship owners to decide okay does it make sense to invest in that ship in continuing to operate it or if that ship is really getting very old does it make more sense just to scrap it out of the fleet delete it from the fleet so if you were going back to the calculation to assume that all ships when they hit their 25 year special survey are actually removed from the sub 10,000 TEU fleet you would actually only get net fleet growth so order book minus the deletion of the 25 plus year old ships of 1.4% between now and the end of 2026. So I would say that represents quite a useful safety valve, let's put it that way, in the event that um, demand is, uh, is, is weak as a result of a, a, a weak macroeconomic environment between now and then. I'm not for a moment suggesting that that's going to be the case, but were it to be a weak macroeconomic environment for the next three years, and were demand to be weak for that period, then you would likely see a shrinking of the sub 10,000 TEU ship as older ships are scrapped out of the mix. Thank you, Tom. Um, we're getting close to the end. I, we've covered quite a few areas today, both at the macro and uh, specifically the GSL. Uh, is there something you'd like to add to the discussion as we uh, as we close out the uh, session today? Um, maybe a view or, or, or a couple of, of comments on the regulatory environment, Liam, which um, is actually, we think, going to be helpful to the supply side fundamentals for our sector. So. Um, I think Ian and George mentioned that there are, um, well, there's pressure from a regulatory perspective on our industry and most industries to decarbonize. And there are a whole suite of uh, environmental regulations being rolled out, which the industry must respect. And um, they're all focused upon reducing the emissions footprint from all shipping. Now, the most effective way to reduce emissions is to slow ships down. Uh, the reason for that is that the relationship between speed and fuel consumption is pretty much logarithmic. So if you slow a ship down a little bit, you actually get a disproportionately large reduction in fuel consumption and a corresponding reduction in emissions. So that's good news on the ecological front. But on the economic front, it's also helpful because if you slow the global fleet down, that's the same as taking capacity out. It's, it's the same, same as taking effective supply out of the mix and tightening the supply demand balance. So as the regulatory environment tightens, which is expected to do over the course of the next, well, certainly over the course of the next few years, but probably all the way through 2050, um, we expect that to have a very helpful effect on the supply dynamic, a supportive effect on the supply dynamic from our uh, our perspective as providers of capacity. So that was my only sort of additional comment that I don't think we we covered in today's discussion. I don't know if anyone else has anything else. No, I would just add that, uh, you know, we're moving into a, a market that is going to provide opportunities. And, uh, you know, that is also 
very positive for companies like us where we have uh, fixed our forward cover and you know we have a strong balance sheet it is uh, you know creating quite uh, nice opportunities ahead of us well that's great um i want to thank the entire management of dsl for coming out today the discussion was was terrific and i certainly want to thank capital link for for making this happen for for both the riley and for global ship lease uh, a copy of this uh, webcast is available on capital capital links website at capitallink.com so again thank you everybody for a great discussion and uh we will talk soon thank you thank you, thank you very much liam and um, thanks to capital link again